I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. They Walk Among Us is part of the Acast Creator Network. Strong gales were sweeping across much of the United Kingdom on the night of Sunday, January 24, 1993. Temperatures dipped below freezing, as most of the country found relief in the warmth and comfort of their homes. On the quiet estate of Birch Hill in Bracknell, Berkshire, Seven-year-old Stacy Carapel was sent to bed early by her mother. She had no plans to go to sleep. Instead, Stacy put on a tracksuit over her pyjamas, packed a small bag and then set off into the blustery darkness. Someone somewhere does know. I've always believed it. Whether they're afraid, whether... It's loyalty, whether it's, it just takes a phone call. You know, stay anonymous. You don't have to give your name. You don't have to just give the police that vital piece that they need. Welcome to Season 7, Episode 38 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Jill Carapel and Stephen Norton became parents to a baby girl on May 29, 1985. They named her Stacy. The relationship had not been without its problems, so Jill and Stephen decided to separate before their daughter was born. Jill had full-time custody of Stacy but Stephen was a hands-on father when he was not working as a painter and decorator. He took his daughter away on holiday when he could get time off. Stephen spoke of his appreciation for Jill as the primary caregiver. He remarked, She acted as both a mother and father, and her children always came first. Stacy was loved, never neglected. Stephen Norton lived on Stony Road in Bracknell, 
around three miles from Jill and Stacy's home on Lady Bank, located in the Birch Hill Estate. Jill began dating again, and she eventually clicked with a man named Barry Carapel. The couple was soon married, and both Stacy and Jill took his surname. The family grew, and Jill and Barry had a little girl named Leanne born in 1990. The cul-de-sac where they lived was the perfect location for the children. It was just a stone's throw away from Birch Hill Junior and Infants, where Stacy was a student. At school, she was observed as a hard-working and extremely friendly little girl. She was lovingly dubbed Pickle. Her father, Stephen, would be interviewed about his daughter. Stacy was a lovely, normal, happy little girl, full of fun, beautiful smiles. She loved her friends. Um, she loved animals. She was just a lovely, normal little kid. Stacy and Leanne were familiar faces in the area. The children could often be found playing in front of the council flats where they lived or in a communal playground. On the weekend, Stacy and other children on the estate played together in the parkland and woodland to the back of the primary school. All faculty members believe Stacy was flourishing during her formative years at school. There was a period of upheaval at home. By January 1993, her mother Jill and stepfather Barry had separated. On the evening of January 24th, seven-year-old Stacy and her three-year-old sister Leanne were sent to bed early at around 5.30pm. Shortly after 6pm, Jill entered the bedroom. She recalled, I bent down to kiss Stacy goodnight, but she wasn't in bed. Her big teddy was in there with the covers pulled up over it. Jill frantically searched the bedroom to see if her daughter was hiding. While doing so, she noticed that Stacy's anorak and her brand new shoes were missing. Jill scanned the bedroom and realised that other items were not where they should be. Her daughter's favourite Mickey Mouse t-shirt was gone, and so was a mauve holdall. Jill ran outside where she desperately began searching for Stacy. She checked in with all her neighbours but none of them had seen the little girl that evening. Panicked as her daughter was nowhere to be seen, Jill ran back home and called the police to report Stacy missing. Officers were quick to arrive as such incidents are a matter of urgency and usually end well with the child tucked up safely in bed within a few hours. They first combed through the surrounding area, but with no success found out further afield. The estate where Stacy lived was enveloped in dense woodland known as Swinley Forest. There was also a woodland path which led from the estate to the South Hill Park Arts Centre and the primary school. The search was going to be difficult, so detectives decided to call in a sniffer dog, hoping to speed up the process. At around 9pm, PC Ian Boswell was searching along a woodland path that ran through the South Hill Park Arts Centre, around 100 yards from where Stacy lived. The path was dotted with bushes which ran parallel, as well as trees and other foliage. Darkness had fallen, but PC Boswell's flashlight lit the path ahead, 
as he noticed the dog picked up a scent and was signalling it had found something. The officer recalled, I saw a small child lying on her back under some overhanging branches. I thought she was asleep and I knelt down and spoke her name. I felt for a pulse, but I could not find one. Stacy was wearing the pyjamas she had been put to bed in, but over them she wore a white t-shirt emblazoned with a Mickey Mouse motif, royal blue tracksuit bottoms, and a mauve jacket. Nearby lay her discarded mauve holdall. Paramedics descended on the scene as detectives guarded Stacy, attempting to revive her without moving her too much. For around 20 minutes, they carried out resuscitation methods, including CPR and a heart massage. They frantically attempted to wake Stacy up, but there were no signs of life. The young child was lifted onto a stretcher and placed into the back of an ambulance that sped east to Heatherwood Hospital in Ascot. Unfortunately, nothing could be done for Stacy, and she was pronounced dead on arrival. My brother-in-law approached me and said that the police were here. I got told she was missing. I said, well, we're, we're go look for her. You know, I want to help look. And then they said I couldn't. And that's when they told me that she'd passed Back at the woodland path, detectives sealed off the area leading to and from the South Hill Park Arts Centre and began searching for any kind of evidence which could indicate what had happened. The investigation was led by Detective Superintendent Roy Payne. Initially, the team started working on the theory that Stacy was the victim of a tragic accident. They speculated that after she was put to bed, Stacy got up, pulled on some clothing over the top of her pyjamas, packed a bag and then snuck out of the home only to be stricken down not long after by exposure. The seven-year-old was known to be rebellious and Jill had told detectives that Stacy had snuck out of the house on two separate occasions to play with her friends. In both instances, however, it was the afternoon and Stacy returned promptly. Even more ominous, Jill revealed that in the days leading up to Stacy's disappearance, her daughter had spoken about running away. Stacy had even mentioned suicide. Jill told detectives that she simply thought Stacy was being dramatic or looking for attention. Maybe she had picked up the word from watching television, in school or playing with her friends, possibly repeating it without actually knowing what it meant. According to Jill, she believed that her daughter had left the home that night to try and search for Steve Hartigan. Not to be confused with Stacy's father, Stephen Norton. Steve was Jill's former boyfriend, and he had lived with her and the girls until around a week before Stacy's body was found. The seven-year-old had come to be very attached to Steve and looked at him like a father figure. She had not taken the breakup well, and Stacy was distraught when Steve moved out of the flat. Detectives did not yet want to consider that anything suspicious had happened. They were still leaning toward a tragic accident. There were no obvious signs of injury, and the fact that she was found underneath bushes gave the impression she was trying to shelter from the gale-force winds. Detective Superintendent Payne stated to the media, we are keeping an open mind until we have the results of the pathologist's investigation. At this stage, we do not know what we are dealing with. 
the hospital, Stacy's body was transported to an examination room, where a cause of death was to be determined. The pathologist concluded that she had died from asphyxiation. However, the following morning, Detectives contended that they still believed the cause of death was an unfortunate turn of events that ended in an accident. Stacy had been wearing a homemade necklace made from twine and dotted with beads. Detectives and the pathologist suggested that Stacy's necklace had become caught in the bushes as she ran through them, possibly seeking protection from the wind. The necklace cut off her airflow, strangling her to death. According to the authorities, it would have been very unlikely Stacy was strangled by another human being. Chief Inspector John Reeve of Thames Valley Police stated, From what the pathologist has told us, after carrying out a further examination of the body, We believe it would have been almost impossible for anybody else to have inflicted the injuries found on her neck. Therefore, we are of a mind that this was a tragic accident, but we are still unable to establish that conclusively. While detectives announced that they did not believe an outside source was to blame, they were still appealing for any information regarding the circumstances surrounding Stacy Carapel's death. Her parents were struggling to make sense of the situation. Jill was holed up with friends while Stephen moved in with his sister. He still had the daunting task of viewing his daughter's body in the mortuary. Stephen poignantly stated, I am numb by what has happened. A loss has not sunk in yet because I am so shocked, but when I see the little girl's body, I know all hell is going to break in sight. He told a reporter for the Evening Post newspaper that he had last seen Stacy just before Christmas. Stephen's face was ashen with emotion and grief as he said, She was really happy the last time I saw her. Full of beans. I still can't believe this happened. While the family were distraught, beyond consolation, they found a grain of comfort in knowing that Stacy was not the victim of a child predator, with Stephen stating, I'm just relieved that she didn't die at the hands of a pervert. All of Stacy Carapel's friends were hit hard when her death was announced at school the next day. Stacy's seat sat empty as her young classmates tried to make sense of the tragic situation. But at seven years old, the fact their classmate would never be coming back was a hard thing to process. One of the family's neighbours, John Wright, stated... Everyone will be totally shocked by this. It is appalling. Another neighbour, Mark Andrews, remarked, Her death is appalling. It is a disaster for her family and will put the frighteners on those with young children. Just days later, The case took an unexpected turn when detectives announced that they were not ruling out foul play in Stacey Carapel's death. They continued to appeal to the public and asked everybody to think back to the evening Stacey vanished, and if anyone had seen her that night, to get in touch with them immediately. There was some concern that as people directly connected to Stacy were quickly eliminated, and the initial suggestion that it was an accident had been widely reported. Witnesses felt they had no reason to come forward with what could turn out to be useful information. Detective Superintendent John Bound, who joined the investigation, voiced his frustration with the puzzling nature of Stacy's death. 
the officer stated, in view of the unusual circumstances, police will be undertaking a full investigation to establish the facts. Detective Superintendent Bound went on to say that it was important to pin down Stacey's exact movements, from the precise moment she left her home possibly climbing out of her bedroom window, to when she was discovered dead along the woodland path. Before the month of January came to a close, a new development unfolded. The Thames Valley Police spokesperson announced, following a further forensic examination by a home office pathologist, we are now treating Stacey's death as a murder investigation. A fresh post-mortem had been carried out by Dr Richard Shepherd, and he discovered sinister clues that had been missed during the first examination. The pathologist also found marks on Stacey's neck. The first pathologist speculated that the marks were caused by Stacey's necklace as she struggled to free herself from the bushes. Dr Shepard, however, believed that somebody had used Stacey's beaded necklace as a ligature to strangle her. Detectives immediately informed Stacey's family of the development in the case. Any comfort they took in the assumed circumstances was now completely shattered. Stacy hadn't died in some tragic accident. Her life had been brutally taken. Upon being made aware that Stacy was the victim of murder, her aunt Christine Evans broke down. Through floods of tears, she said, I am absolutely stunned. Why did it have to happen? She was such a beautiful little girl. I was surprised when I heard she had died because of her necklace. My own little girl wears one, and it would not take very much to snap it. Steve Hartigan, Jill's former boyfriend, was crushed by the news as well. Stacy's murder was even more poignant due to the fact Jill believed Stacy had left her bedroom that night to search for Steve. When speaking to the press, he remarked, I have been told by the police not to say anything, but this is terrible. Steve travelled to the spot where Stacy's body was found and left a card which read, I love you with all my heart, and I'll never forget you. The revelation that Stacy Carapel could have been murdered left parents living in Bracknell fearful for the safety of their children. Chief Inspector Reeve announced to the terrified residents, Now that we know that she was killed by someone else, we are warning parents in the Bracknell area to take extra care of their children and to be aware of the situation. Parents were keeping a closer eye on their loved ones and the neighbourhoods were unnaturally empty. Children who had been trusted to walk to and from school alone were now driven by their concerned parents. The woodland where the children on the estate once played was now haunted by the memory of what had happened to Stacy. The only sign of life down the sodden dirt path was the makeshift memorial set up in her honour. Children were sat down by their parents and warned about stranger danger. They were told about the perils of running away from home. Just the year before, 10,705 people were reported missing in the West Midlands, and the vast majority were under the age of 17. Carol Baisden, the director of the charity Parent Line, spoke with the media and described how children running away from home was a new phenomenon that parents needed to be concerned about. She explained that children had much more freedom nowadays than they did 10 or 15 years ago, 
and before the 1990s. They may have threatened to run away, but they were much too frightened to carry it out. The charity director stated, The under-13s have a broader knowledge of the world from all the TV they watch and are generally less scared about just taking off. Since Stacey Carapel had threatened to run away in the days leading up to her disappearance, Carol Baisden urged parents across the United Kingdom to take such threats seriously. A full-scale murder inquiry was underway with an incident room set up at Bracknell Police Station, but detectives admitted they were stumped in their investigation. They had spoken with all of Stacey's neighbours and friends. However, nobody could account for her whereabouts after 5.30pm on the evening she disappeared. Investigators were keen to track down anybody who was in or around the wooded area where Stacey's body was eventually found. Detectives were confident that she had not been abducted from her home. They had theorised that she had left of her own volition and was then intercepted by her killer. It was speculated that she was killed elsewhere and then her body was disposed of on the woodland path. According to Stacy's mother, Jill, there was no way her daughter would have entered the woodland herself, especially after dark. In an attempt to generate some much-needed leads, Stacy's father, Stephen, pleaded for information that could help lead detectives to his daughter's killer. I am devastated. You never think that it is going to happen to one of your own. I'm just pleased that they have found out what happened and hopefully the person who did this will be caught. I would not want another family to go through what Jill's family and me and my family are going through at the moment. We are all numb. Detectives were struggling to not only identify a person of interest, but identify a motive. There was no indication that Stacy had been sexually abused. Officers were working around the clock, and they soon learned that the front door to Jill's flat was rarely locked. According to people who knew the family, Friends were coming and going at all hours, day or night, and apparently Stacy was not pleased with the influx of people constantly inside her home. Detectives from the Thames Valley Constabulary discovered that five different men had popped by the flat on the evening of January 24th to visit Jill, and that the front door had been left off the latch. That said, every single person who had been in the property that evening, including Jill's former boyfriend Steve, had been extensively interviewed by detectives, and none of them were considered suspects. As soon as this information became public knowledge, some reporters began alleging that Jill had a string of boyfriends, and some questioned her parenting skills. An article in the Daily Telegraph read in part, Stacey's story can be seen as a parable of our times. While she shared a room with her half-sister, into her mother's room trooped a number of uncles. On the Berkshire estate where Stacey lived, such transient father figures are not unusual. Stacey's father Stephen quickly came to Jill's defence telling Bracknell and Ascot Times, Jill was a perfect mother in my eyes. I always saw Stacy clean, tidy and happy. To me, this means she had a happy life. The first week of the investigation had brought no leads. So on February 1st, Stephen Norton pleaded once more for information about his daughter's killing. A flash of despair washed across his face as he said, 
I just want them to come forward and tell the police. It doesn't matter how small the piece of information might seem. Frustratingly, not a single person had reported seeing Stacy after she absconded from her home. In an attempt to find a potential eyewitness, detectives returned to the wooded area where the child's body had been found. They stopped walkers and asked them whether they had been walking through the area that evening, and if so, had they seen Stacy or seen anything or anybody suspicious? But unfortunately, that approach was unsuccessful. By now, the number of detectives working on the murder case was over 30. To try and learn more about Stacy's background, they began interviewing some of her young friends from school and from around the neighbourhood. It was hoped that by building a comprehensive profile of her life, it could lead to her killer. Detectives had not yet established whether Stacy was killed by a stranger or whether she was killed by somebody that she knew. While interviewing her friends, officers from Thames Valley Police also appealed once more for any eyewitnesses to present themselves. Detectives were convinced that there must have been someone who saw Stacy and held vital information about what happened. Shortly thereafter, someone did speak up, a little girl. She told detectives she had seen another child on the evening Stacy vanished. The young person who matched Stacy's description was walking near the bridge over the end of South Hill Park. She was alone. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. By February 3rd, Detectives began theorising that Stacy had been killed by somebody she knew. The new eyewitness who said they had seen Stacy near where her body was found led investigators to believe that she had been approached by her killer somewhere near the woodland. Officers from the Thames Valley Constabulary revealed that there was no evidence of a struggle, which lent some weight to this theory. Nevertheless, they said that they were keeping an open mind. This was only one of the theories that they were currently working on. They still couldn't rule out that Stacy had been killed elsewhere, 
and then her body had been disposed of in the woodland. Detectives began to conduct door-to-door inquiries to try and identify anybody else who may have seen Stacy that evening. Over 300 people were questioned, but by February 8th, detectives planned on questioning hundreds more. A further 30 detectives were drafted in to take on the mammoth task as Detective Inspector Martin Sawyer stated, This inquiry has progressed, but we do not know what happened to Stacy that night. We are still appealing for help from members of the public. Stephen Norton had been very vocal in his quest for information regarding his daughter's murder. Although Stacy's mother Jill remained silent after several articles in the tabloid press put the blame squarely at her feet. She was staying with family, and it was reported that Jill was still far too distraught to speak publicly. It was surprising then when a shocking development in the case arose. On February 11th, almost three weeks since Stacy Carapel was last seen alive, her mother was arrested at a relative's home. Jill Carapel was brought to Bracknell Police Station to be questioned. She remained in custody for 87 hours before being released without charge. Not addressing the development directly, Chief Inspector John Reeve told the Evening Post, The killer is still out there. Somebody out there killed Stacy. We need the help of the community to catch that person. Just the following day, Jill made her first public comments on the murder, and as she wiped a tear from her cheek, she solemnly stated, My daughter's killer must be caught. She then returned to the flat for the first time since Stacy's body was found. Endless shouts came from reporters and photographers as Jill struggled to get through the crowd. She was accompanied by her former boyfriend Steve Hartigan, who provided a few words on her behalf. He stated, Jill is still very distressed but wants to make it clear the police were excellent in the way they handled everything during her arrest. Steve claimed Jill had been arrested for general questioning, not because she was a suspect in her daughter's murder. She does not care about rumours, what people are saying about her or what they think, he said. She just wants the killer caught. Investigators could not identify anybody in Stacy's life who may have wished to bring her harm. They turned to the Child Murder Bureau and asked them to compile a profile of Stacy's killer. The Bureau had a database of all child murders that had occurred throughout the area for the past 15 years. It was believed the data could be analysed and through this process, the killer's approximate age, where they lived and their background could be identified. As this was being compiled, detectives got another lead from somebody who reported seeing a man at around 6.30pm at a wooden bridge over the lake situated to the rear of South Hill Park Art Centre. He was described as a white man, approximately six feet tall and was carrying what was believed to be a guitar in a soft plastic case. While there was no evidence that Stacy had been sexually abused, detectives considered that the killer may have intended to sexually abuse Stacy, but was interrupted by a passerby. Detective Superintendent Bound from Thames Valley Constabulary shared his belief that Stacy had been killed somewhere between the bridge and South Hill Park Art Centre. Her body was then dumped by the killer in the location where she was found. 
The police wanted to interview anybody with a record of violent or sexual offences who live near the scene. By now, more than 2,800 people had been interviewed in the house-to-house inquiries, and 300 statements had been taken. Soon thereafter, the man with the guitar case came forward and identified himself to detectives. He had been in the park that evening, but explained he hadn't seen Stacy. He was ruled out of the inquiries, but another tip came in. A witness reported seeing another man in the park around the same time. He was a white male estimated to be between 25 and 40 years old. He stood around 5 feet 8 inches tall and was wearing a three-quarter length donkey jacket with suede patches. A further witness then also made contact with detectives to say she had seen a man at the rear of Liscombe House, which backed onto the woodland, sometime around 7pm on the night Stacy disappeared. Like the first, the description was rather broad. A white male between 20 to 35 years old, around 5 feet 8 inches tall and had short blonde hair, grey trousers and trainers. Detectives were quick to stress that the men were simply potential witnesses, not suspects. The profile for Stacy's killer came back later that month, but detectives described it as, quote, useless. They had hoped that it could eliminate potential suspects, but the information used to compile the profile was based on past child murders that were sexual in nature. Detectives were not entirely convinced that there was a sexual element to Stacey's killing. Although it was possible that the murder was sexually motivated and the killer was disturbed and abandoned their plans, that was a guess. Detectives couldn't say for sure. As the months passed, in April, the police revealed that there were six people in and around the woodland on the evening Stacy disappeared that hadn't come forward. They were described as a homeless man near Birch Hill Shops, two teenage boys by the bridge over South Hill Park Lake, two joggers running through the park toward the bridge, and a man in his thirties on the pathway at Frobisher. Once again, officers stressed that these people were only to be considered eyewitnesses, not persons of interest or suspects. At the beginning of May, it was announced that detectives had sent an investigation file to the Crown Prosecution Service. They had remained tight-lipped about the inquiry, but it appeared as though they had a suspect in mind. The next month, Stephen Norton once again appealed to the public for help in bringing his daughter's killer to justice. He said that he feared that while detectives believed they knew who killed Stacy, they didn't have sufficient evidence to bring a successful prosecution. They can't be allowed to just walk away from this. You know, I'm never going to walk away from it. And who, who can't be allowed to walk away from it? Whoever done it. Stacy's father shared his belief that somebody within the community was withholding information about his child's murder information that could potentially crack the case wide open. Stephen said that if anybody knew anything, to get in contact. He had hoped that somebody would come forward and provide information to strengthen the detective's case against the suspect. Just the following week, Stephen Norton's fears were confirmed when the CPS concluded there was insufficient evidence to mount a prosecution. A spokesperson for Thames Valley Police said, 
A file on a particular suspect was prepared and considered at length by the Crown Prosecution Service and Council. Although they concurred that a prima facie case existed, under CPS guidelines relating to the likely prospect of conviction, they were not prepared to authorise proceedings. This meant that while the case remained open unless new evidence came to light against the suspect, no charges could be filed. It was a bitter blow to Stacey's loved ones and detectives who had worked tirelessly on the case. In a statement to the Evening Post, Jill said, I am very distressed and disgusted by the CPS decision. The pain, hurt and anger will remain for many, many years. I would now appreciate the chance to grieve in peace. On July 2nd, six months after Stacy Carapel was killed, she was finally laid to rest. Hundreds of mourners packed into the chapel at Bracknell's East Hampstead Crematorium. Personal invitations were sent out to all of Stacey's friends and family, but Jill decided to open the doors to the public. Much of the community had shared in the family's grief. Jill and Stacey's father Stephen took their seats on opposite sides of the chapel. Sobs could be heard from the mourners as Stacey's small white casket was brought in. The service was led by Reverend Graham Theobald, and two hymns that had been recorded by Stacey's classmates played from the speakers. A poem that Jill had written was read aloud. It read in part, Do not close your heart to how you feel. Dream and don't be afraid your dreams aren't real. Close your eyes, pretend it's just the two of us again. I wish I could find the words to say how much I miss you now you're gone. Following the service, Stacy Carapel was buried at East Hampstead Cemetery. Jill had forbidden Stacy's father Stephen from approaching the graveside until she and her friends and family had finished paying their last respects. He later remarked, I had to stand back was not allowed to go near the gravesite. That was her wish, not mine. The investigation into Stacey Carapel's murder was scaled down after the Crown Prosecution Service decided there was insufficient evidence to mount a successful prosecution. Then, in July 1993, it was announced that an inquest into Stacey's death was going to be held in October by East Berkshire Coroner Robert Wilson. Meanwhile, Jill moved into a home in the Bracknell suburbs of Harmon's Water with Steve Hartigan. A pair were still separated, but they remained close friends. One day in August, Steve awoke to find the property filled with thick black smoke and the carpet ablaze. Along with Jill, he managed to escape as he watched the home go up in flames. Arsonists had poured petrol under their door and set the property ablaze while the occupants slept. The attack indicated that some still blamed Jill for what had happened to her daughter. Some even believed she was somehow directly involved. This was not the first attack aimed at Jill. The tyres had been slashed and bricks had been thrown through her windows. Through tears, Steve said, We are not frightened of what people say. We have nothing to hide.
That same month, it was announced that the inquest into Stacey Carapel's murder would be pushed back until June 1994. There had also been much speculation that witnesses would be called to testify during the inquest, but shortly before it began, it was disclosed that this was not the case. Stacey's father, Stephen, was furious and referred to the inquest as a cover-up. He stated, I was originally told it was going to be an open inquest that would last about two weeks, but now they say they are just going to read out statements. It was our last hope of getting the CPS decision overturned. The proceedings went ahead beginning on June 15th. On the first day of the inquest, it was revealed for the first time that on the evening Stacy vanished, Jill had sent her daughter to bed early so that she and a group of friends could watch television and smoke cannabis in the living room. It had been something of a poorly kept local secret, but now it was made public. During the proceedings, it was further revealed that Jill had in fact been arrested on suspicion of murder, not for a routine interview like Steve Hartigan had claimed. Detectives had spoken with Jill's former husband, Barry Carapel, who informed them that Jill frequently held Stacy around the neck and had once done it until she turned blue. Harry further admitted that on occasion, Jill smacked Stacy hard. Barry stated, She would tell me that she had knocked Stacy across the room or picked her up and given her a good shaking. Stacy was not really bad, but it was like a game to her to see how far she could go before Jill broke down and slapped her. The statements indicated that life for Stacy was not as picturesque as had been implied throughout the investigation. Barry explained that there had been one instance when Jill had attacked him with an iron bar. Reviewing the evidence, the coroner Robert Wilson revealed that several men often stayed in the flat where Stacy lived and cannabis was frequently smoked. This was something that infuriated Stacy, who was often banished to her room. According to Jill's sister Denise Money, she once asked Jill, who do you think's done it, in reference to Stacy's murder? Denise said Jill laughed and replied, I could have done it. Denise went on to say, A laugh sent a chill down my spine. It was almost as if she was leaving it up to me. My impression of what she said was that she had killed Stacy. In summing up the case, the coroner said, What parent at some time has not been driven to distraction by children playing up? Life as a single parent must have been very difficult. But driven to distraction to do what? To slap your child? To hold it by the neck and shake it? To strangle it? Mrs. Carapel is quite adamant in her memory of what happened. And to say she deliberately set out to kill her daughter is beyond belief. Robert Wilson concluded the proceedings by stating, Unless further evidence is to come forward, we shall never know who murdered Stacy, but murdered she was. The inquest finally revealed that Detective's main suspect in Stacy's murder was her own mother, Jill. They had collected soil samples from both Stacey's shoes and Jill's shoes, but testing was not sufficient to make a case against her, and they had little else other than circumstantial evidence. Submitting her comments regarding Stacey's death, 
Jill made a statement in which she spoke about her hope that the inquest would remind people about her daughter and might lead to someone coming forward who would identify the killer. Jill described how on the night her daughter was murdered, Stacy quote, wanted an adventure, special attention or was upset about something and did not want to come into the living room because of the visitors. The door was on the latch, which made it easier for her to get out. These are obviously things I deeply regret and make it hard to come to terms with her death and everything that has happened. Later, Stephen Norton described how the inquest made it clear to him who had killed his daughter, but said that he did not have enough money to bring a private prosecution. So where are we now? In September 1998, just over five and a half years after Stacy Carapel was murdered, Stacy's family were hit with another tragedy when her stepfather Barry was stabbed to death after an argument in Bracknell. He was killed by his younger brother Andrew. Eventually, the years became decades, and Stacy's loved ones struggled to fill the loss that her death brought about. The family were torn as to who exactly was responsible for her murder. Some believed there was enough evidence against Jill, while others speculated that it was a random sex offender, or potentially even somebody else that the family knew. January 24, 2023 was the 30th anniversary of Stacy Carapel's murder. Thames Valley Police announced that they were reopening the investigation and again appealed to the public for information. Head of the major crime investigation review team Peter Byrne told the media, I believe there are people who have information or suspicions about Stacey's murder, but for whatever reason have yet to inform the police. The time has come to provide that information. He added that the team would never stop investigating cold case murders and sexual offences. Burns said that he was determined to uncover the truth about what happened to Stacy Carapel. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all. 
jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.